So this season presents us with a lot of opportunities. As a matter of fact, this morning I want to talk to you guys about missing out. How does that kind of make you feel? When you think about missing out on something, it's kind of like a total bummer, right? Um, and it's, it's very possible that some of you uh, heard from the grapevine about a really cool party or uh, a get-together that maybe they just lost your invite for. I, that's happened to me. Yeah, that, that's happened to me. How about this one? Have you logged on to Facebook, saw that an old friend came to town and was visiting with your friends down the street and you never got a call? You saw those pictures and you're going, what the heck? That actually happened to me kind of recently and it, it just kind of tweaked me, you know? It, it tweaks you, I'm sure, to be left behind and to miss out. I don't, I don't like it. It kind of feels like you're the butt of a joke. Speaking of jokes, have you ever missed the punchline to a joke and gone, ha, what? Oh, Tom's a joker. What a joker Tom is. His jokes. But you didn't really get the joke, and then, you know, a little bit later, you're just like, I'm silly. Why did I do that? It's because we hate to miss out. We hate to be left behind. We don't want the ship to leave with us still on the docks. We don't want the train to depart the station, and we're running after it. Nobody likes that. And as a matter of fact, in movies, there's this famous trope called Missing the Obvious. Some of you may have seen a movie called Harvey. And uh, in it, this brilliant character, Elwood P. Dowd, has this brilliant quote, and it's all about missing the obvious. He says, I started to walk down the street when I heard a voice saying, Good evening, Mr. Dowd. I turned, and there was this big white rabbit leaned against a lamppost. Well, I thought nothing of that, because when you've lived in a town as long as I've lived in this one, you get used to the fact that everyone knows your name. Well, this time of year presents us with huge opportunities to miss the obvious, to miss out and be left behind, because the context, colors, and concepts of Christmas distract us and entrance us and oftentimes kind of lead us, although the season is filled with good tidings, into a version of ourselves that's stressed, busy, overcompensating, overtaxed, in debt, unable to provide fully what we want to do, and just distracted. In the Logan household, we have all these traditions that started up because, you know, we're a new little family, and so we really want to start commemorating our holidays a certain way, and I'll just tell you a few of them because they're kind of fun. One of them is, as close as we can to December 2nd, um, we go and we cut down our tree. And don't tell my mom because she hates that. Uh, But uh, we go and we cut down our tree. And the cool thing about it is we kind of do these little nuances. We sing to the tree, oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, respectfully, and then cut it down, and then... (laughs) And then we don't trim it afterwards, not not once you've cut it and and cleaned up the bottom. You don't touch it afterwards. You've got to respect that, you know, that's God's creation from nature. And so we don't trim it after that, and we decorate it, and we do our thing. And the other really cool thing that we do is we take the bottom of the tree where we've made our our little cut, and we we would burn an ornament. And we just kind of, we do our little last name on there, and and then we we try to include something on it from the year. You know, this year we'll probably have a rattle because we had our baby this year. And um, last year, I know, it's exciting. Merry Christmas to me. Uh, (laughs) Last year was really exciting. We put an arrow pointing north because we what? We moved up here to be with you guys. And I've loved it. It's just been so cool. But for all the good tidings, there are challenges to the season. Whether they're financial, emotional, or spiritual, it really could cause anyone to misplace the meaning of Christmas. 
If you're like me, maybe you grew up in a challenged household, single parent. I know that for me, Christmas was a time where I, as a very empathetic child, would watch my mom stress over finances and how she was going to get us things for Christmas. And you know what? She never failed to get me socks, which I always needed. And the other gifts were always really cool, nothing too fancy, but we had a, a brilliant time. But I will, I will not lie, and I'll tell you that, that the truth is that there was a, a bit of melancholy when we would, you know, wake up and give each other small gifts, little gifts, especially when we'd look at some of the things that other people were able to give their loved ones. Well, this season, and especially today, I want us to leave here today with the common goal of not missing out on Christmas. I want us to walk out of this building encouraged to remember what is truly important this season. And I want to give great credit to my pastor and yours, Terry Riley, who helped me prepare this sermon. I stole a ton of ideas from him, and, and we were going through it, and I said, yeah, oh, I'd love to talk about this and that and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, great. And he started giving me pointers, and then about halfway through, he goes, oh, I really wish I was preaching this sermon. <laughs> so I, t- I took a good one. So... Um, let's just look at some characters from the Christmas narrative. And, and I want to point out three characters from the Christmas narrative who I really feel missed out on this season. And then I want to relate them to, to things in our lives. Uh, I'm going to pick it up at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I'm just going to kind of read this to you, and, and we're going to get an overview of the first character. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So right up front, there's a few details here. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And this comes from the top, tippity top. Caesar Augustus issues this decree. So you can assume that there's probably uh, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, sweating on the brow and like, oh my gosh, we've got to go and do this census and uh, what are we going to do and how are we going to get there? And all of these people are now really uh, forced by governmental decree to go not just to where you live or the city hall of the town you live at, but the town you were born in, the town that your family name is coming from, the town that you were a child in. And, and that, for many, I will assume, is, is, a, is a very long journey. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. I love that. Luke points out something really important here. There's an old, old prophecy from the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah, this Christ child being born of the line of David. So Luke already is writing, knowing that whoever might read this gospel might not necessarily believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he includes the historical context to help people who might not know Christ know, hey, the line of David, like the prophecy said, this is where Jesus came from. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, oh, my page flipped. It did, didn't it? Anyways, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay, so first of all, It never says that there was a large, overweight, fully bearded man smoking a cigar who opened the door of the inn and said, get out of here, we don't have room. Close the door. And I know many of us have seen Christmas productions in which such a character is depicted. 
We really, the innkeeper, he's got this like bad rep as this, you know, really swarthy old weird guy who just kind of closes him out. When in reality, it doesn't necessarily say that there was an innkeeper there. Now, we can safely assume that because Yelp didn't exist, they couldn't call ahead, and that they very, very likely did come to the door of an inn, and that someone received them, and that someone said, I'm sorry, there's no room. We don't know how they said it, so we can't give them the bad rep of a villain. But what we can say is that the inn was full. Now, it's important to understand that probably the, the, the innkeeper or whoever managerially addressed Joseph and Mary... This inn was probably their livelihood. And if you know people who have a business that it's their livelihood, they do the details. Does anyone here know anyone administrative, managerial? When you cross them or you do something that's kind of out of line with what they're trying to do, they're like, no, you can't sign up for that. It's too late. I sent an email three weeks ago. The deadline was today. And you cannot sign on. Can I just tell you, that's not a sin, okay? They're not bad people. They're just administrative, and they care, and they've got the details, and they're doing their thing, and they'd rather you didn't upset the apple cart. Now, the innkeeper gets a bad rep, but the one thing I will say about him, let's call him ignorant preoccupation. (laughs) See, because he doesn't know. No one came up to him after Mary and Joseph went away and said, you know, that was the Christ child you just turned away. Oh, silly you. Nobody said that. I mean, and he probably never knew. I, I would assume he'd be very embarrassed if he was here today. Can you imagine? He, he, he didn't know. I mean, if you and I were sitting at a restaurant and someone famous came in and sat next to us and we had no idea, almost surely someone would come up to you and say, uh, that, was, that was Ashton Kutcher. I can't believe you didn't recognize him. Did you ask for an autograph? What did you say? What did he say? Was he on the phone? Did you catch? What kind of phone did he have? You know what I mean? Like, nobody would have told this guy what was going on. But he was flooded by people because of a census that he had no control over. And then, what happens when you get word that your wife invited 40 people over for a Christmas party? <laughs> you put on the tool belt and you're like, I got to do the crown molding and fix the blah, blah. And I can't have this spout out front. I got to fix it. And you probably mowed the lawn and did a few other things. And ladies, what happens when you invite guests over? You're going, are they going to notice the dust on the floorboards? I've got to dust the backside of the fan. The, the arms of the fan, the tops of it are very dirty. Would you grab the ladder, dear? I'm trying to get up here. And if you're like, you know, my mom, you probably said, no one helps me in this house. But anyways, (laughs) so he was probably stressed and working hard and, you know, really wasn't his fault that he had to turn away some people. Now, I will say this. He suffered under what I like to call our modern day equivalent was, actually, I stole this from Terry, the preponderance of pressure to produce presence, right? That's the kind of, that's the modern day equivalent for what his sufferers were to us. I look around this room and I see like a ton of people that I'm like, God, I wish I could get them a Christmas present this year. I mean, that's really the problem with having so many great friends is that you're like, I can't possibly get everybody the present I want to get them. And you guys feel that too, probably for family, probably for friends, new people you've meet, met throughout the year and, 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 and maybe even kids that have been born and oh, maybe you missed a shower and you got to get your niece something and, and it's Christmas and you're just feeling this preponderance of pressure to produce presents. I just want to say this morning that if that's you, take a deep breath, put aside what you cannot do, do what you can do well, and don't allow ignorant preoccupation to overcome you. It's important to remember that the innkeeper was not a bad man. He was just a businessman. 
And the business of this season creates for us a danger that we may not get it right. So give yourself right up front permission to get it wrong, permission to forget somebody and have to send them maybe a card later on in the year when it's their birthday time to compensate. But, but really, don't allow business to overcome and, and, and cause you to misplace the meaning of this holiday. Let's move on. We've got another character, and this one really is a bad guy. I'm going to jump to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to talk about King Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Pump your brakes. You're talking to the King of the Jews. Herod literally was the Roman appointed ruler of the Jewish people. And if three guys came in with presents that I thought were for me and said, hey, so where's the king of the Jews? I see you've got a crown there, but he was just born. You're about 60 years too old. I'd be a little bit upset, especially if I didn't know Jesus, because that's really the only thing that keeps me from being kind of a scumbag. You can laugh at it. It's good. I've, I've come to terms with it. Uh, so they say, Who, where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they, go, they take it even further. Not only are we here to give him gold and stuff, these presents aren't for you. We're also going to bow down before him and worship him. Where is he? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. You know what I thought when I read that? I was like, well, why would all Jerusalem be disturbed? That's the coming of the Christ child. That's the king who's going to set them free, they think, from the Roman Empire. But I realized that it actually works like this. The reason Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod is, has anyone had a boss that when they get upset, everybody else is going to know? Right? Have you ever worked for somebody where it's like, <clears throat> he's having a bad day again? You're just going to want to keep things quiet, get your work done. Yeah. That's kind of what it was like probably to be under Herod. He, he, he probably was like, they saw him mad in the court, so they probably are all like, okay, I'm going to go make sure I took care of the business that he asked me to take care of. Because Herod, as a historical character, was awful. I want to read to you a little bit from an awesome book called Killing Jesus. It's, it's a really in-detail historical um, look at what this was all about. And here's what this author, uh, historian says about Herod. Herod has learned to live with aches and pains, but these warnings about a new king in Bethlehem are scaring him. Since the Romans first installed him as ruler of Judea more than 30 years ago, Herod has foiled countless plots, waged many wars to remain king. He's murdered anyone who would try to steal his throne, even executed those only suspected of plotting against him. His power over the locals is absolute. No one in Judea is safe from Herod's executions. He's ordered deaths by hanging, stoning, strangulation, fire, sword, and live animals, serpents, beating, and a type of public suicide in which victims are forced to hurl themselves off tall buildings. Herod has ten wives, or had, before he executed the fiery Maryam, his previous wife, for allegedly plotting against him. Suspicious, but nothing confirmed. For good measure, he also ordered the deaths of her mother and of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Within a year, he will murder a third male offspring. Small wonder that the great Roman emperor Caesar Augustus was rumored to have openly commented, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. So you have this madman king. 
When Herod heard that this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him, and he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. So he called together uh, the Jewish teachers of the law and priests. These would have been the scribes and the Pharisees. And he asked them, where is Christ to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote scripture. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Wow, so it's kind of interesting to me that Herod believes enough to call on men of Scripture, ask them, so where does the prophecy say he's going to be born? These men are here in fulfillment of the prophecy to worship him. Where is he going to be born? They tell him, and he begins to concoct this vile and disturbing plan to end the life of this king. He believes only enough to act upon his murderous impulses, but not enough to realize his days are numbered because Jesus came to be the king of the Jews, but more so the king of all of us here. And the perspective of this thing is that, yes, Herod's going to lose his crown, but guess what? Every king throughout all of history, previous and post, will also bow down before the king of kings. Let's call Herod, uh, I don't know, jealous insecurity. You see, he was trying to cling to his crown, and I suppose you might ask this morning, um, <clears throat> in what way am I like Herod? Because you're probably feeling like, oh, well, I'm definitely not that bad. Can I just say that to what are we clinging? Um, I personally, as, as, a, as, a, as a human being, I have things that I'm holding on to. Things that speak about my trust in God. Things that speak about my personal obedience. I have thoughts and feelings and, and just I have a whole lot in me that I sometimes cling to rather than handing them over and saying, okay, I'm going to let Christ be birthed in my life. And rather than be like King Herod, I'm going to be like those who came and gave over what they had to the King of Kings. Though he was a child, though he was born in a manger, I'm not going to cling to what I have. I'm going to let it go. I love Herod's example because for our own sanity, and I really believe that Herod really kind of just lost his mind. Anyone who would murder their own children really, I feel, has lost their mind. I feel for my own sanity that this season, I have to give all of Christmas, but not just that, all of my life, over to the king who came in humility. Let's look at a last character, our last set of characters. And these are going to be the chief priests and scribes. And these guys are really interesting. Uh, you know, they came before Herod at, at his summons and they answered questions about where Christ was to be born. They knew, they knew all of these things. They knew the law. They knew the, the books. They understood. And yet, they still served a foreign king rather than sneaking out the back door and going, I'm going to go find Christ. I'm going to go find the one who's been prophesied about. It seems like these prophecies are coming true. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to take what I've learned my whole life and I'm going to act on it. Oh, these chief priests and scribes must have from boyhood been brought up in the law, understanding scripture and who God is and that he was going to come again. And regardless of what they thought Jesus was going to do, they still didn't pursue him. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, that's fine. 
But some of us have been in church our whole lives, brought up in the truth, and we haven't acted on it. We've got to surrender the season to the one it's about. And I, for one, I know for many years in my life, I think I was brought up in the truth and I knew all the right answers and all that good stuff. But I, I remember there was a turning point, and we'll talk about it later in the sermon. There was a turning point where I really had to just give it up to God and pursue Jesus. It didn't matter what I knew. I had to trade my religion for a relationship with the living God because only a relationship with the living God can change you. The danger of religion at Christmas time is that we can become Christian crusaders. So please, this Christmas, don't go banging down people's doors, literally or figuratively, to say, you know what this is really about, don't you? This isn't about Santa. Take that hat off. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Sit right down. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, but literally or figuratively, because you could do that on somebody's Facebook wall and it'd be just as offensive as if you did it on their front door. Please do not, <laughs> do not represent your faith with sarcastic, sanctimonious flatulence. Okay? <laughs> PT once said to me, no one comes to Christ through debate. No one meets Jesus in an argument. Amen? So I don't want to leave you with negative characters. I, I, don't, I don't want to say, okay, there's three bad people. Don't be like them. I want to give you two great examples of kind of what I would consider the cornerstone of what I believe, not just for this season, but on into the year and forward into my life. I want to give you two great groups of people who pursued Jesus. And the first are the Magi. I'm going to jump back to Matthew, the same verses we were looking at before, chapter 2. I'm going to run over here to um, verse 9. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Can I tell you something? These guys weren't Christians. They weren't even Jews. They had little reason compared to the people of Christ to come. They traveled across the Parthenian Desert, a lawless place carrying gold. What did PT say last week? Basically a Brinks truck. They drove a Brinks truck worth of treasure across a dangerous zone of banditry and, 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 and foul, just anything you could imagine, and, and they brought it to a child. Okay, I, I, I told my wife earlier this year, I said, I just want to let you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get our daughter a Christmas present. I mean, maybe pacifiers or something, but she's not going to be able to appreciate it if I buy her a car, so I'm not going to buy her anything big, you know, because she's not going to understand it. These men brought a child some of the greatest gifts historically given. Why did they do it? I was with my men's group Saturday, and we were talking about the glory of God and how all things are to the glory of God and how this presents such a huge debate because we look at the evil and the terrible things that take place and we say, how could that be for the glory of God? It's easy to ascribe the good works to the glory of God and say, yeah, that's for the glory of God. We really just had to break it down and say, you know what? We don't always know what glory means. 
We don't always know what glory looks like, what it sounds like, what it tastes like, what it'll feel like when we're standing in the presence of God. And a good friend of mine said, I trust that when I'm standing in front of God, I either will understand when I see him or I'll just ask. For the glory of God, these men pursued Jesus. It's amazing and magnificent that they should recognize the Savior being born before anyone else because their pursuit of truth led them into the greatest story in history. And while the chief priests and scribes were busy appeasing a tyrant king and not really caring about the Messiah, foreigners recognized who he was. Let's look at our last and I think our greatest example, the shepherds, humble before God. I love how certain people react to Jesus. Don't you love it in the text how it's just like, nobody who should gets it, gets it. Nobody should, it just, and then everybody who should not seems to understand. The sick, the weary, those needing a healer, those broken seem to recognize Jesus. It's the healthy people who didn't understand who he was because they didn't identify the purpose for why he'd come. But here are these shepherds. And as the prophecy unfolds about him, they respond with worship in their hearts. We say the word worship like it's singing and clapping, and it is. It's singing, it's clapping, it's raising our hands, it's, it's praying, it's kneeling, it's believing, it's faith, it's all these things, but then it extends into just pure action. Watching their field, the sheep at night, you know, tending to the field, and then this glorious sight appears before them, and these angels singing, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Oh. And the angels left them and went into heaven. And the shepherds said to another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they saw him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. One of the cornerstones of my life has been those who have mentored me. And in every season I've had mentoring, every turn I've had someone there encouraging me because it's likely I would have quit if I didn't, and God probably knew that. <laughs> I had a mentor once who called me to the carpet in 2008. I was emailing him, and I asked, what does it take to do what you do? He was a worship leader, and, and just because this is from a worship leader doesn't mean it's about being a worship leader. This is about being a follower of God. So whether you know Jesus or you don't, I want you to take this to heart and just consider it this morning, okay? Take it out of the context of a job or, oh, well, that's because you're a pastor. No, this is what he would say to anyone, I believe, who wants to follow Christ. And I said, what does it take to do what you do? What does it take to be where you are? How do I, you know, get there? Because my great concern was that I would make things about myself and that it would be for my glory. And what does Kyle look like? How does Kyle feel? Well, let me tell you, ladies, I wore this long shirt so that uh, I wouldn't cause any of you to stumble this morning. And I asked him this, and he just, he called me to the carpet in one of the most loving ways ever. He said, these are great questions, and I appreciate your honesty. Until we see Jesus, we will all struggle with the right motives. I know I have been guilty many times of using worship for my own glory, which is a horrible thing. 
But in the same breath, I can say there is nothing I cherish more than experiencing God's presence in worship and having a sense that he used me. I can honestly say that all the flattery I've received through the years is nothing compared to how God touches me when I worship him. I hold on to this when I struggle with motives. As far as qualities you need, there are really only two. Humility and reliability. The very essence of worship is humbling ourselves before God. If you ever want to be a worship leader, you just have to flat out keep showing up. I know you have the gifting to do this, but it seems to me you maybe haven't made up your mind. You need to be the guy that shows up faithfully, being a worshiper no matter who's leading, who's speaking, and constantly be asking, how can I serve? I know you've had health issues. Please don't think I'm questioning your commitment. I'm just being as honest as I can. Let me know if you need anything. I read that and my heart kind of just went, man, I was really kind of shaken by it. Because you see, I I had become what I like to call overqualified and underprepared. I was talented and charming and I could walk in and say, I want to do this and they'd let me do it. But in reality, my private life was probably in shambles and I wasn't really trusting Jesus and I wasn't really doing what I thought was right and I was mixed and messed up. I was qualified because of skill but totally unprepared in my heart. And ever since then, I have used humility and reliability, really, Humility and the pursuit of Christ as goalposts to just kick through, kick through, kick through every day to try and make sure that I line up with what's being required of me by being a follower of Christ. I will tell you that you cannot do it perfectly. And I love the humility when he says, I have been guilty many times of using it for my own glory. What a horrible thing. But I can say in the same breath, there's nothing I cherish more than experiencing God. I love that. Like the wise men, they pursued Jesus reliably, humbly. A lot of texts say that these men were kings. They were more likely, just more like magi, men who were learned, wise, understood things, and definitely had wealth. But they pursued Christ across a desert, across a nation, from one to another, in a foreign land. And the shepherds in humility came before Christ. I just love these two people. The wise men and the shepherds. I don't remember what that says. Go ahead, cue it up. <laughs> Humble pursuers of the one true king. Yeah. Good job, Kyle. Sorry, I wasn't listening. Okay. <laughs> this morning, all I really want to do is, is encourage you to be a humble pursuer of the one true king. That in humility and reliability, you would continue to press in especially if you don't know God. I find that the more I humble myself and the more I seek, the more God reveals to me, even if I'm not feeling it. Sometimes we have to act our way into feeling. We, we can't always feel our way into action. If that was the case, we'd all get fired because I don't wake up feeling like going to work. But in humility and the pursuit of Christ, I have found Jesus again and again and again in the staying power of this community and other communities like it. So let's continue being the community and let us each persevere in our walk, finding Jesus daily. Whether we walk away and accidentally lose him, let us always turn back in humility and faithfulness to retrieve the meaning of this 
messy life the meaning of who he was and is and will be 